What's interesting about Advent is this time of anticipation. And what I wanted to do for the next three weeks is look at three passages in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was written 700 years before the birth of Christ. Think about that. 700 years before the birth of Christ. And I want us to look at three passages that were written 700 years before the life and birth of Christ, but that anticipate the life and birth of Christ. Now, we think of Advent as being a long time, four weeks, right? My kids can't wait three days for Christmas. You imagine waiting 700 years for Christmas. 700 years the people of God waited and anticipated the birth and the arrival of the Messiah. And so I want us to dive into Isaiah to not just read something that happened in history, not just something that happened 700 years before the life of Christ. I want us to feel it emotionally. I want us to get into what was it like in, the, in, in, in what the people of God were experiencing in Isaiah. What was it like to be longing for, to be awaiting for the arrival of this Messiah? And so we're going to start our series, which I've entitled Joy to the World, because the world needed joy 700 years uh, to 700 years before the coming of the Messiah. They needed joy in those dark days. And we'll find out why it was so dark in those days. And in Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through 7, we will read the first of three passages that we'll go through together this Advent season. So 700 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah writes these words. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they were glad when they divided the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every brood of the boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor mighty God, everlasting Father and Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with righteousness and justice from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the very word of God. So when we look at Isaiah chapter 9, when we think of a time in the life of God's people where they needed a good word, if they need a life in the time of the people of God where they needed joy to come into the world, it was here. Isaiah tells us that the people were living in darkness. How dark was the world? Well, the people of God had just been devastated by the Assyrians and the Syrians. They had come from every angle, from every side, and absolutely devastated the people of God. There was no hope. There was no joy. This was a people that were living in darkness. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, 
the, the idea of darkness is synonymous with death. It's a shadow of death. It actually means a shadow of death that covered the people of God. It's, it, it might seem familiar to even the time that David writes about in the psalm where he says, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Anytime we see darkness throughout the scripture, it is synonymous with death. It, it is a shadow of death that is covering the people. It is a time of great oppression. It is a time of great distrust. An immoral and ungodly and oppressive government is ruling over the people. These people were so dark, they were so evil, that they would, they would bribe the people to bring their firstborn children to the temple to be burned and to be sacrificed. This was an evil group of people that were ruling the land at that time. They were living under a shadow of darkness, and they needed a good word. They needed joy to break forth. And we see here in, cha- in verse 2, we see that the light enters into the darkness at just the right time. It was a dark time, the shadow of darkness, and they need the opposite of darkness. They need light. All throughout the scripture, just as death is synonymous, just as darkness is synonymous with death, we will see all throughout scripture that light is synonymous with life. In fact, in John chapter 1, what does it say? That the light has come into the darkness, and that light is the light of men. So in the midst of darkness, we need light. And we need that light to bring us life. For you here this morning, you might resonate with this. You might look at your own life and look at your life and say, it is like a dark cloud is hovering over my head. We think of the darkness that surrounds us and sometimes we're oblivious to it. It's, it is not the type of darkness just simply turning off the lights in the room. It is a deep darkness that covers the earth and for some of us covers our lives. I think of people even in our church and in our surrounding community that I've had contact with in the last two months. I think of a man who, who came to me vulnerable Desperate, said, my, my marriage is falling apart and my marriage is so bad, my wife said, you, you'd be better off dead so our family can just move on together with a new life. I think of a, of a family who found out that their four-year-old son has cancer. I think of the couple that I heard about recently that found their two-year-old son drowned in a pool. I think of the unreconciled relationships that I hear about every single day. I think about the depression and the loneliness and the fear that we all struggle with in our life. So there's not one of us that is removed from this idea of deep darkness, the shadow of death hovering over our lives as the shadow of darkness and death was hovering over the lives of the people of God. Here in Isaiah chapter 9. So who is the light? This light that enters into the darkness. This promised light that enters into the darkness of the shadow of death. Who is the light? In verse 6 it it tells us that this light penetrates the darkness. Is the child. It is a child that is born. It is a son that is given. We now know that this son and this child that was promised 700 years before the Messiah came into the world is none other than Jesus Christ himself. 
But think about the significance of that. God could have planned any other means to bring light into the world. He could have planned any other way to take away the shadow of death and darkness from this earth. And he chose a one, a child, a son. Think of the irony of the incarnation at Christmas time. God himself, the very God who in Genesis chapter 1 did what? Spoke the world into existence with his very words is now the infant. The word infant means not able to speak. The very God who spoke the world into existence with his very words is now silenced. Humbled himself. Did you ever stop and think about that? The miracle of the incarnation, the glory of the incarnation. So when we sing the carol at Christmas time, what child is this? We are literally asking that question. What could kind of child could have done this? Be born into the world as the God-man coming into the world to pierce the darkness, to pierce the shadow of death. What a mystery that the child comes. He comes as a child, humbles himself. The one who spoke the world into being in existence is silenced. It should hit us that our world is so messed up, our lives are so messed up, that it required God sending his son at Christmas to save us. And to rescue us. So not only does God send his light into the darkness. He sends it in the most radical way. In the most ironic way. He sends it into the world as a son. As an infant. As a child. But what does this son. What does this child come to do? It tells us in the second half of verse 6. It says that the government shall be on his shoulders. What does that mean exactly? When we think of government, our minds automatically go to Washington, D.C. We go to the maybe the two branches of government or the two houses of government, the House of Representatives and the Senate. But it's so much bigger than that. It includes that, but it's so much more than that. When Isaiah in chapter 9 talks about the government being on the shoulders of this child, it literally means all of the affairs of the world. All of the leaders, all of the rulers, all of the council, all of the strategies of the entire world are resting on the shoulders of this child. It means the most wicked rulers. It means the most wicked and evil plans of all men and women throughout all of history are all resting where? On the shoulders of a child. Doesn't that give you great comfort? Doesn't that give you great hope? That the affairs of the world, the strategies of the world, the wisest men and women that have ever lived that are leading the affairs of the world all ultimately rest upon the shoulders of a child. I need to be reminded of that. And so do you. What comfort is there if that is not true? What comfort is there if really everything Underneath the sun is not riding on the shoulders of Jesus the Christ. Remember a mentor a couple years ago was challenging me. I was going through a a difficult time in life and I was worrying and uh, overwhelmed with problems and issues and thinking and and just totally overwhelmed and anxious about a particular issue in my life. And I remember my mentor looking me in the eyes looking at this pastor, overwhelmed with worry, anxious, 
say, Rob, you have two theologies. I said, what do you mean? He says, you have a theology for your congregation, and you have a theology for yourself. He said, you love telling people that God's in control of all things. From the the cancer, to the divorce, to the children, to the problems at work, to losing your job, to economy, you name it. You love telling people that God's got it. But that means nothing to you. And it was one of the most convicting things that man or any other man or woman could have ever told me. So I was living life as if the weight of the world was riding on my shoulders. Two theologies. Is God really in control of all things? If you go to New York City on Fifth Avenue, there is the famous cathedral, St. Patrick's. But across from the cathedral, there is a statue of the Greek god Atlas. And the Greek god Atlas is carrying what on his back? The globe. You see, the the Greeks believed that because it was a curse to carry the weight of the world, that Atlas would be the one that would model what it would be like for us all to carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. Atlas was put there and was this mythology was developed for us to learn what it would be like that if Atlas did it, then surely we would have to do it. We would surely have to suffer through this life, putting the weight of the world on our shoulders. That's literally where that phrase came from, from the Greek god, the myth of Atlas. And before you look at that and say, that's absolutely ridiculous. If we were all honest with ourselves, we live our lives every day like Atlas. And we go through this life with burden after burden, carrying the weight of the world. There are things running through your mind as I speak, be honest, that you haven't heard a word I said this morning. And that's okay. I get it. But life is so consuming, life is so overwhelming, that you feel like that Greek god Atlas, carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. So I ask you this question, is there any better news than at Christmas to hear that there is a child, a son that is born, that not only comes as the light into the darkness, but there is a child that is born, his name is Jesus Christ, that says, wait, stop, I will take the weight of the world off your shoulders, all of your burdens, all of your fears, all of your anxieties, and I will put the weight of the affairs of the world, your affairs, your problems, the things that keep you up at night, and the first thing that you think about when you wake up in the morning, I will put that and rest it on the shoulders of my son. Is there any better news than that? That he comes in, and he comes as a child, and the weight of the world rests on his shoulders. And then it goes on to say at the end of verse 6, that his name shall be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. These were names and titles that were given to kings, but not only any kings. These were titles given to kings that have conquered something. They were kings that were here to establish their military power and absolute reign. 
that he is the wonderful counselor, the great strategist that oversees all of the affairs of the world and of the people. He is the mighty warrior God that goes into battle on behalf of his people. He is the everlasting father who will be like a father to a new nation and the prince of peace. His kingdom will be established and he will do what David and Solomon and every other king after him could never achieve. The establishment of peace here on earth. And that's what we get to do. You see, it says that of the increase in verse 7 of his government and peace, there will be no end. And we see the reality of this in Matthew chapter, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus says to Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. That it is through the building of his church and the advancement of his kingdom, it is you sitting right here that carry on. As ambassadors of the kingdom, the light of the gospel into the darkness of the world. So that Love South Florida is not just a flash in the pan. It is not just something that happens one time a year. But we go out from this place. You see, you don't come here to Coral Ridge every Sunday to sing songs, to listen to a sermon, and to shake hands with people. You come here to Coral Ridge to worship, but then to be sent out as a light into the darkness, into the darkness of South Florida, piercing the darkness with the light of the gospel so that we can fulfill this on behalf of our King Jesus Christ and be able to say, yes, the increase of his government will see no end. This kingdom will be advanced and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is why we're here, to come to be the light in the midst of the darkness. But I leave you with this question. How's this possible? Yes, there will be a battle. Yes, evil will one day be defeated. Darkness and death will be no more. But how exactly will this battle be accomplished? How will we see this be realized here on earth? Well, the answer is actually in verse 5. It says in verse 5, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What Isaiah is trying to say there is this, that everything you think you need to fight the battles in your life, everything you think you need to take on the weight of the world on your shoulders, Isaiah says, throw it in the fire. Throw the swords, throw all of the battles, throw all of the things necessary to fight the battle. Why? Because the battle is not against flesh and blood. You have greater battles than the things that you think are, you are facing in life right now. There is a greater battle to overcome evil. There's a greater battle to overcome sin and death and darkness. And guess what? You don't have to fight it. But you say, well, how? How's it, going to be, how's it going to be accomplished? Isaiah says here, throw it all in the fire. Let it be burned up. There will be no more shedding of blood. Why? Because this son, this child, not only comes into the darkness as light, not only does this son come into the world for the weight of the world to rest on his shoulders, but this son comes into the world at Christmas time to let us know that he is our warrior, that he is our hero, that he will fight the battle for us, that he will shed his blood for us on our behalf. He is the hero that you have always longed for. It's 
for those that are sitting here today saying, I've been longing and looking for a way out. I've been longing and looking for rescue. I have been desperately trying to find how would I ever get out of this mess of life. And through the mess and the toils and the tragedies of life stands a hero who says, throw it in the fire. Let it be burned up so that I might fight the battle for you. Let me end with this. Story of a a man by the name of Matt Monsoor. Matt Monsoor was, sorry, Mike Monsoor. Mike Monsoor was a Navy SEAL. And he was a Navy SEAL that was called into battle into Iraq. And Navy SEAL is something few of us would, few people ever accomplish. But one day in fighting the battle in Iraq, he was in the city of Ramadi. And in Ramadi, with 20 other SEALs, they were held up in a hole on a sniper mission. And towards the end of the mission, a grenade fell into the hole. The reports that came out of Ramadi that day say Mike Monsoor was the only Navy SEAL that had a clear exit and a clear way to get out. But Mike Monsoor did not escape that day. Instead, he fell on the grenade and he saved the other 19 Navy SEALs. He died so that they could live. When they buried Mike Monsoor at Fort Rosecrans National Cemetery in San Diego, the Navy SEALs formed a line for the casket. And every Navy SEAL took what they're awarded when they become a Navy SEAL, their golden trident. And as the casket passed, they hit the top of the casket. One by one by one. As the casket passed and they pounded over and over and over again, that casket of Mike Monsoor, they all cried out in unison, our hero, our hero, our hero. They said at the end of the procession of that casket that it had been hit so many times, there was a golden film on top of that casket. So as the casket was lowered into the ground, there would be no mistake who the hero was that day. For those that are in Christ this morning, you know who your hero is. You know that feeling. That feeling of being rescued. That feeling of having a hero. As John Stott famously said, if this child, if this child is really God, can't just like him. You either have to hate him or you have to fall down at his feet and worship him. And I ask you this question. If this child really is your hero, why would you go another day? Why would you go another day without falling down at his feet and worshiping? There are two people in the room today that will lay their head down on their pillow tonight. People that know that God is against them and know that God is for them. And I pray that today would be the day, unlike any other day, where you would fall down at his feet and worship. That joy has come into the world. And it's a son given for you 
by grace, a gift for you this Christmas. Maybe this is the greatest Christmas ever because it is the first Christmas where you realize that the Son is for me. When Isaiah wrote those words, a child born for you, a son given for you, that maybe actually he was speaking to me. That this child is for you this morning. Would you receive him?